0: I don't know how much you took in of what Ed read, but it's a disturbing passage. I thought a passage easy to read or easy to imagine what is going on. So I'd like us to pray to begin with. Father, we acknowledge that our ways are often not your ways and we don't understand well. Thank you for revealing your ways to us, your mind and heart. Please help me to speak accurately for you. Give us minds to understand and hearts to take to heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage about justice. I think it's true that all of us have just intuitively a strong sense of justice. Uh, Apparently, according to Reader's Digest, the most spoken phrase by young kids is, it's not fair. It's not fair that my siblings take a bigger piece of cake. It's not fair that when they mark my uni assignments, I don't get the grade that I deserve. But there's much weightier issues of justice, aren't there? Justice in Ukraine. We'd love to see that, wouldn't we? Justice for our Aboriginal population. Justice for healthcare workers after COVID and in COVID. Justice when it comes to climate change. Now, My generation was a little bit blasé, but my understanding is that surveys show your generation is very committed to justice, and I'm glad to hear that. But our culture is confused about justice. There's lots of diverse views of what justice is and how to get it. Uh, Is a fair go a level playing field for all or some sort of affirmative action? Is justice preserved by freedom of speech or by restricting freedom of speech? It's not always easy to work out. Uh, Alasdair McIntyre is a philosopher uh, and late 1900s he wrote a book on justice and and he sort of distinguished competing views of justice within our world. I don't know whether any of that makes sense to you, uh, but there's sort of a spectrum of people who tend to see us more as isolated individuals or communities, collectivism. And within that spectrum, there's various views of the sort of justice that people are after and what it might produce for them, from libertarian at one end to the sort of postmodern critical theory at the other end. In critical theory, in that sort of postmodern, justice is achieved by taking away all power and privilege from those who've had it because they've oppressed the others, victims of their power, and so we need to oppose their privilege. We need to stop the oppression. And today's passage throws us into these confusions and competing ideas. You see in chapter 16 that that's the area we're looking at. In verse 5, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. Or in verse 7, the altar responds, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This passage is about justice. Now, we're jumping into Revelation 15 and 16, and I guess for many of us, that's a little bit of a what the? Um, well, firstly, let, just to let you know, if you haven't been here the last few years, in 2020 and 2021, we worked through Revelation chapters 1 to 14, and the recordings of those talks are on the CU website. Feel free, feel free to go and have a look at it. And uh, this semester, we're starting at chapter 15, which is we're up to, going through to the end of the book. But we do it with some trepidation because the book of Revelation is probably the most confusing and contested book in the whole Bible about how to understand it. It's the place where people go who've got all sorts of speculations and wacky ideas. You'll find them in the book of Revelation. It's where most heresy is justified from. Most Christian cults that aren't actually Christian find their home in the book of Revelation. So we need to sort of backtrack a bit and, and just put ourselves into the context of the book. What is this book? Well, chapter one, we're introduced to the book. It's the revelation from Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Jesus, to show his servants, including John, who writes, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything that he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So what do we see? We see it's the word of God, or the testimony of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. That's just another way of saying the gospel about Jesus. That's what this book is, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like like Romans. It's, It's the gospel about Jesus. It's not weird and wacky, fanciful speculations. It's primarily the gospel. And it was revealed to John in visions. He doesn't say what he heard. He tells us what he saw. It's the gospel in pictures. Now, one friend of mine sort of talks about the book of Revelation. It's like Christian science fiction. It's got all this weird stuff in. And it is a bit weird, but once you understand its picture language, it helps. So, for example, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb who was butchered but is now alive again. That's a bit hard to imagine, isn't it? A lamb, cuddly little furry thing. That's been butchered, it's got this huge gash, its neck has been totally destroyed. But now it's standing up alive, still with the scar. You think, what on earth is that? That's sort of nightmare material, isn't it? But it makes sense, doesn't it, if you know about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, who died for our sins, who was slaughtered as the sacrifice, and who's now alive again, still bearing the scars of his death. Because that's who he is. He's our Lamb. The picture language makes sense once you start to get on the right wavelength. Its orientation is future. It's what must take place soon. And so it's pictures of the future, but it's also pictures of what's true now. See, I can tell you what's going to happen in the future by telling you what's true now. So if you saw that in one of the offices in the chancery, while we're having this meeting, there are 10 people sitting around a table working out the exam timetable you know what must soon take place, don't you? Because you see what's happening now. And the book of Revelation does that. It keeps moving backwards and forwards between what's true now and what will be true in the future. Because what's true now tells you about what, we, what will be true in the future. And we're told it's worth reading and taking to heart. So please come with me as we do that in this section. The book of Revelation is highly structured. And until you get a, your, hand, your head around the structure, it's hard to make sense. It particularly is structured around these sequences of seven. In chapters 2 and 3, which aren't in this uh, diagram, uh, Jesus writes a letter to the seven churches. And then in chapters 6 and 7, seven seals are broken. Chapters 8 to 10, uh, the trumpets of God are sounded, seven trumpets. And here in chapter 16, the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. So I need to go back and just sort of have a look at this structure and try and make sense of it. In chapters 4 and 5, the foundation of the book is laid where John sees into heaven and he sees the creator of all on the throne. You see, this universe is not a democracy. We don't get to elect our government. God is the creator and therefore he sits on the throne. And that won't change no matter what you believe. And all honour and power and glory is due to him because he made us. And everything that gives us life. But in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll rolled up, sealed, written all over. A a, a scroll like that is normally the the will and testament of somebody. What will happen? His will for this for planet Earth, if it's in the hands of the Creator. And the question is asked: who's worthy to, to take this scroll and open it, to break the seals? The answer is no one. Which is sort of true, isn't it? Who would you trust? with all the power in the universe. Not me. I wouldn't trust you either. It's mutual at that point. Who who would you trust? And John is told there is one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who turns out to be the slaughtered lamb, who gave his life as a ransom for people from every tribe and nation. Yes, he's worthy. He's someone who will give their life for their enemies. He's worthy, isn't he? He's worth, you can trust him with all the power in the universe. He's not going to abuse it. He's not going to misuse people. He won't exploit his position and his privilege. Now, he is worthy to take the scroll and open it. And so he does. And as he breaks the seals, some of God's will for planet Earth is revealed in the seven seals. And each seal unleashes suffering in the world, the four horses of the apocalypse and the woes that come after, the wrath of the Lamb on sinful humanity. But there is a a sort of interlude, there's a vision of God's people safe in chapter 7. From one angle there's 144,000, each one numbered and known by God. From another angle, uncountable multitude from every tribe and nation across the planet whom God has sealed to keep safe during this time of suffering on the earth. And the seventh seal leads to the seven trumpets of God which brings partial destruction on the earth, on the sea and the land and the, the fresh water, the people of the earth. The trumpet blasts of God warning humanity that judgment is coming. But people won't listen. And then in chapters 12 to 14, there's a vision of a dragon and a baby and a couple of beasts we'll come back to in a second, which introduced the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16 that we're looking at today. Now, how do we understand this? How How do we relate this structure? There's lots of ways that people do it. And and it's something which I'm still sort of trying to work out in many ways. But here's here's a way of thinking about it, which I think is right. uh, Printing, we do with four colours. You've got a laser printer at home. That's what happens. It lays down four colours over the top of each other. And each of these sequences of seven is like one colour of the way in which God's purposes in the world are being worked out in this world at the moment coming up to the final judgement. And each one adds to what you see in the ones before. So when you put them all together, you get the final picture, the multicoloured picture, the true picture of what is going on. And chapter 15 and 16, we're told, is the end of this process. This is the final colour being laid down. The immediate context of chapters 14 and 15, uh, sorry, 12 to 14, help us see chapter 15 for what it is. In chapter 12, we won't go and read it, but if you've got a Bible, have a quick look. A woman is pregnant with a, a baby. The baby is baby Jesus. And a dragon is watching for the baby to be born because he wants to eat it. But God snatches the baby to heaven to safety. And then there's war in heaven between the forces of God, the angels, and Satan and his angels, and Satan loses. He's thrown out of heaven to earth. Uh, And we're told that the victory is won by the blood of the lamb and the word of God's people's testimony. That is, they win. Satan loses because Jesus dies and takes away the penalty for sin. So Satan no longer can accuse people of anything. All his power is gone. He has no place in heaven. So he comes to earth. And what's he going to do? Well, he knows his days are numbered. His time is short. So he goes on a temper tantrum. He says, I'm going to make it as hard as possible in the few days I've got left against the people of God. And he enlists a couple of allies, beast one and beast two from the sea and the land. Uh, and, and the three of them, the dragon, who's Satan, and the two beasts form a sort of anti-trinity, an alternative to the true God. Now, if you're interested in the Trinity, and I hope you are, come to NYC. <laughs> we'll see what the true God is really like, because he's very different to the dragon and the two beasts. This one represents political and military power. And that has been used century after century against Christians. In the time of John, it was Rome. Rome persecuted Christians almost out of existence for 150 years or so. Uh, But it's not just Rome. It's Berlin and London and Moscow and Beijing and Washington. It's any political power that uses military power to flex its muscles B2 is different. It's false religion. He's called a false prophet in this section we're looking at today. In John's day, that again was Rome, who set up its own gods. The emperor was God, and you had to to, to worship him. Christians who resisted were often killed. In our time, as well as IS, there's, there's any number of false religions that seek to exercise power over people. Often the two going together, political and religion, to oppress God's people. And they lead all the people of the world astray, except the people who belong to the Lamb, who have the Lamb's name on their forehead. And Chapter 14 shows the end result of that, God's harvest, God's final judgment. Let me just read to you a little bit from chapter 11 and, uh, verses 11 and 12. They will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. It pictures the final result, eternal torment in hell. A horrifying picture. A picture that's meant to disturb us if you have family or friends, if you have neighbours who don't trust in Jesus. I have a brother who hates Jesus. This, I take it, at the moment at least, is his destiny. And that raises questions of justice. Could anybody really deserve hell? Especially eternal hell. And what about the the wrath of God? How do you put that together with a a God of love? And these seem like victims, not perpetrators, that they've been sort of forced to follow uh, the beasts in their opposition to God. These are serious questions. They're personal questions for most of us. And they lead us into chapters 15 and 16. The completion of God's wrath. Chapter 15, which isn't printed, sets the scene for us. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. It's filled up to the brim. This comes from the temple of God. It's not just random events that happen in the world. It's sent by God himself. And they're devastating. They're called plagues, seven plagues, because they're meant to remind us of some earlier events in the Bible. Where do plagues happen in the Bible? If you're in an upper year small group, you know the answer, don't you? It takes us back to the Exodus, where God inflicted ten plagues on the people of Egypt in order to rescue his people, Israel, out of slavery. And it's meant to remind us of that, because those plagues to Egypt, like these plagues, are judgments of God. They're blows, like they were against Egypt and her gods, so it is against us, our gods, our world. But it also brings salvation for God's people. Through this judgment, God's people are rescued from the affliction that they come under. Now, here there's seven, not ten, but... There's lots of echoes of those plagues in Egypt. Let's quickly go through the plagues. The first one, the land is hit, people come out with sores all over their bodies, like like ulcers, all who worship the beast, like the plagues of boils that came on Egypt. Second is on the sea, the the oceans, like the Nile was turned to blood, like in the second trumpet, the water is turned to blood, except there it was only a third of the seas are turned to blood. Here it's all. And then the third seal... Uh, sorry, third plague, the fresh water is turned to blood. So people are forced to drink blood. Presumably that kills them. The sun is made scorching hot. This is worse than any sunburn you've ever had. SPF 50 plus won't help you with this sort of sun. And then thro- darkness comes on the throne. Like darkness came on the land of Egypt. Darkness is terrifying. Isn't it? If you've been in one of those caves where they turn all the lights off and you're in pitch darkness, and and you just you're disoriented, you don't know what to do. Imagine that going on and on and on. Not just frightening, but threatens your life and your sense of, of, of person. And then the Euphrates is dried up, leading to Armageddon. In the first century, the paranoia of everybody living in the Roman Empire was the Parthians who might come across the Euphrates River and invade. And they were seen as, well, they were horrible people. And so for the Euphrates to dry off is to allow those hordes to come and invade. And the dragon's trinity makes the kings of the earth gather for the Battle of Armageddon, the battle in the place of Megiddo, the plain in Israel where many of Israel's battles were fought. Except, notice, there's no battle. <laughs> they gather for the battle, and it's so anticlimactic. There's no, no, this isn't like the, the, the battle for Helm's Keep, where the, the armies go and go and go for ages. And, it just doesn't happen, this battle of Armageddon. Instead, earthquakes come. The earth is devastated. Hailstones destroy everything and everyone. This earthquake is no ordinary earthquake. It's not not 7.5 on the Richter scale. It's it's off the scales. Hailstones are like boulders. This is the final judgment of God. And Babylon, which is Rome or Washington or whoever collapses, completely destroyed. How are we supposed to take this? How do we understand what is going on? Well, like the plagues of Egypt, the sores, the darkness, the blood, the hail, now... They're not just in Egypt, they're across the world wide, everywhere. Everyone is affected by these. And they're like the trumpets of chapter 8 lots of correspondences, except there it was only ever a third, it was only partial. It was a warning shot across the bows from God to say judgment is coming, but this is the judgment. It's everything, it's total, it's devastating. Now, are they the same events as the trumpet? I'm not quite sure. Are we supposed to look at things happening today, whether that's COVID or other things, and say, "Oh, look, here's the, the, the bowls being poured out? Well, sort of. So I take it that these events, these bowls poured out, are the shadow of the final judgment of God, of the hell that goes on forever in chapter 14. They happen in this world physically. Plagues and diseases. That hit people, a foretaste, a pointer to the final judgment of God. The judgment that is coming. And when it comes, this is what what it will be like. And who does it come on? Well, verse 2 tells us very clearly. It's on those who have the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Which, if you've read earlier, it's everyone except those who have the lamb's name on their forehead. It's all those except those who follow the lamb and trust him. In verse 6, it's specified a bit more clearly. They have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. You gave them blood to drink as they deserve. Uh, Now, we need to understand that in the Bible, there's this thing called corporate guilt. Uh, A passage that shows us is is Matthew 23, where Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem of his day, "What what will come on you is all the righteous blood that's been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, the people Jesus was speaking to weren't alive when those murders happened, but they're part of the people who did it, and so they carry some of the guilt from it. They've been party to it, even if they didn't pull the trigger. But we need to notice what's emphasised in this passage. It's the response of those on whom this judgement comes. Again and again, we hear how they respond to the suffering that comes on them. Verse 9, they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, and they refused to repent and glorify Him. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains, and they refused to repent of what they had done. Verse 14, they gather in battle. Verse 21, Uh, again, they cursed God on account of the plague of hail. To curse God is to blaspheme the name of God. They they feel the pain of God's punishment and their response is to curse God and swear at him. They recognise it's God and they lash out at him for doing it. And they refuse to repent, to turn around. They're hardened against God. Like the Egyptians were in the Exodus. They they dig in, stubbornly refusing to give up. And if you've read the story of the Exodus, you want to keep saying to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, come on, just wake up to yourself. What you're doing is absolutely dumb, isn't it? The writing's on the wall, you're not going to win. Stop now. But they don't, and they don't, and they don't. They don't repent. Is what we'd call, if this happened in one of our courts, contempt of court. I don't care what you say, you got no right over me. And that's what people say to God. And in the end, all are destroyed. The whole world collapses, still cursing God. And we're meant to see that that response reveals the heart. They're determined not to bow the knee to the true and living God. No matter what, nothing will change their minds. So let's zoom out for a minute and try and make sense of this. We've seen the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out on a world, poured out on people. It's horrendous. If in your imagination you've sort of gone with the story, you've imagined what John is describing, it's deeply disturbing. It, it, it creates anguish. It's like the stuff you watch in horror movies, isn't it? except you can only watch horror movies because you know it's not real, you know it's not true, but this is real. I don't think I could watch this movie, especially when I think about my brother, my neighbours. It's hard to take in, it's hard to preach. It's an aspect of Christianity in the Bible that is probably most unpalatable to non-Christians and to Christians as well. It raises two important questions about God two very important questions one is what's all this stuff about God's wrath and what sort of justice is this let's look at those briefly in turn wrath this passage is saturated with the language of the wrath the anger of God but for many of us that doesn't square with the image we have of God God is much more like a a cuddly teddy bear than an angry grizzly bear but more seriously It doesn't seem compatible with the God who reveals himself in the Bible as the God of love, the God who is love. Yes, God is love, absolutely. The Father has loved the Son from all eternity and that's the foundation of all reality. If if that isn't the foundation of your understanding, come to NYC. We'll, We'll explore it there. It's going to be brilliant to see. But love is not incompatible with wrath, with anger. Now we need to be careful. God's anger is not like most human anger where we just lose it. I get out of bed, the wrong side, I don't sleep enough, I feel a bit irritable and it doesn't matter what it is, I just fly off the handle. Now God's anger is slow and measured and controlled. But there are times when anger is right. I presume over the last couple of weeks you've seen some of the evidence coming out of Ukraine about the hundreds and thousands of people, men, women, children, children, executed by the invading, invading soldiers in the Ukraine. Stories coming out of villages like uh, Butcher, Buka. sorry, that's sort of the wrong way to say it, isn't it? And that, but it fits. Uh, uh, one woman told the story of uh, soldiers coming into her home and just shooting her father without, without a word, just shot him, and then raped her multiple times in front of her young son. Uh, That's not a horror movie, that's true. That's, That's what's happening in Ukraine today. How do you feel? I hope you feel appalled. I hope you feel angry that this is happening, that people are being treated like this. It's right to feel angry. If you feel nothing, what does that say about you? If you just think, oh, that's okay. they're soldiers, that's war... There's something wrong with you, isn't there? Now, it's right to feel angry in the face of evil. But the opposite of anger—sorry—the opposite of love is, is not anger. It's indifference. If you're angry, it shows you've got some compassion for the victims. You ha- you have some love for them. You've got at least some moral instinct left in you. And when there are victims of evil, love for the victims necessarily leads to anger. At the perpetrators, but God's anger is not contradicting His love; it's an expression of His love. How do you think God feels when He sees the violence in Ukraine? When He sees the violence in many of our homes? When He sees the, the rape and sexual assault of female students at UWA? When He sees the corruption that sends millions of people into poverty in so many countries in the world? God is rightly angry he is full of wrath secondly these chapters point us to justice to what is just and true Uh, back in chapter 15 um, uh, the the people of god say great and marvelous are your deeds lord almighty just and true are your ways king of the universe who will not fear you lord and bring glory to your name for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous, your just acts have been revealed. They're revealed in the bowls being poured out. Or in chapter 16, uh, verses 5 to 7. Again, you get this note. You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. Yes, Lord, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They're receiving exactly what they deserve. It's absolutely fair and right. That is, the Bible's trying to persuade us that these judgments of God are true justice, are right. Now, we need to think a little bit about the types of justice that we can get in our world. Uh, It's normally people... Sorry, go back. Um, If you ask the question, what to do about evil, people talk about deterrence or rehabilitation or retribution. And there's a good place for rehabilitation and deterrence, but they can't be the foundation Without retribution, that is, people getting what they deserve, rehabilitation and deterrence become evil. They don't treat people as real, responsible human beings. They don't take people's decisions and actions seriously. And intuitively, I think we know that retribution is right. It's what's needed. When we say it's not fair, what we want is that sort of fairness, people being treated as they deserve. When people are sentenced in our courts and the sentence is inadequate, the, the victims jump up and down. They rightly squeal, saying, this is not right. For the victims, it's too hard to bear if there's no justice. There's no closure. Their cries, it's not fair, are left unanswered. See, it's worth asking, what if God never comes in justice? What if this world just goes on and on and on? Injustices heaping up again and again. Because mainly people get away with injustice, don't they? Hitler, Putin, they just get away with it. They never get called to account, not even in a temporary way. What if that is the end of humanity? It will be terrible. A God acts in retributive justice. Those who have imbibed critical theory, there's a suspicion of all power and privilege. It's always on the side of the oppressor. They want to be on the side of the oppressed. We must resist and undermine all claims to know and impose power on others. And it's true and slightly uncomfortable for us then that God's judgment comes from his position of power. He imposes it on others and we want to call call God out and de-platform him. But power is not always wrong and oppressive. You see, God is rightly in power. He's our creator. We are dependent on him for our very lives. And God's power is not used oppressively. We know that from Jesus. He gave his life for us. He doesn't exploit and misuse his power. But it's also true that you need power to bring justice. See, if our courts have no power, they can't impose justice. It's only because there is a police force and and government standing behind that contempt of court doesn't work. If we didn't have that power behind those... Uh, imposing justice there would be no justice god has the power to to impose justice and he will we might think god's justice is not just he brings terrible suffering he brings hell forever that's excessive that's vindictive people don't really um, deserve that people aren't really that evil maybe hitler is maybe putin is but not my brother not my neighbor and i need to acknowledge the depths of evil do vary. And I take it that the pain of hell will vary from person to person because some are more culpable than others. But this passage shows us that the evil inclination of the heart runs through all of us. This inclination against God, this autonomy. While life goes on comfort, in comfort and ease, it's sort of below the surface. But when pain strikes, our true nature is revealed. The godly pray for help and acknowledge they deserve more than what they get. They plea for mercy, but the godless get angry with God. They show contempt for his court and his justice. I remember meeting a guy at church. He, he, first time I'd ever met him, I said, oh, how come you're at church? He said, well, three months ago I had a terrible car accident. I said, tell us a bit more of the story. He said, well, mate and I were driving home from a party, we were absolutely smashed, I was driving, I was speeding, I lost control, went into a tree. I ended up in hospital, just smashed to pieces. I was in a coma for more than a week. Um, And now I'm at church. And I said, how come? He said, well, I woke up and I realised that God had saved my life. I deserved worse. I I, I realised I'd never given God a thought in my life, but I realised that I needed to take God seriously. I said, what about the other guy? He said, he hates God. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, the same thing happened to him, except he wasn't injured nearly as badly as me. But when he was recovering, he said, God said this and I don't deserve it. And he started to curse God. He said, our, our hearts come out under the pressure of judgment, of pain. And what this passage is saying is, on the last day when we look back, if we know God and we see his judgment... We'll be able to join in the song of chapter 15. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, for your righteous acts have been revealed. How can I be enjoying heaven when I know my brother will be in hell? Because I'll know that God has done what is right. doesn't mean there won't be any pain. But I will be able to rejoice that justice has been done. Rightly, fully. Completely by God. Will you be able to join me? Do you rant against God's justice? Or do you welcome it? Do you cry for mercy, knowing that I deserve the same? Or do you curse God because his judgment is coming? That's the question that this passage raises for us. I'll leave it for you to answer.